questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. In the wee hours of the morning during the winter of 1971, Steve Boucher and his band, Harmony Grove, were heading home after performing at a house party in Vineland, Ontario. The van they were traveling in encountered an obstacle in the form of a large, brightly lit, saucer-shaped object resting on the road ahead of them. As they stared in wonder, they had no idea that it wouldn't be long before they would meet the occupants. Recently, after many decades of silence, Steve Boucher finally decided to go public in 2016. He now reveals his amazing story of multiple encounters with what he believes to be extraterrestrial beings, commonly referred to as the Greys. He described the thorough investigation of his case by renowned UFO researcher Bud Hopkins, then subsequently by the Canadian UFO Research Network, Kuforn. He will discuss the transcripts of several regressive hypnosis sessions he underwent during the investigation of his case and describes his struggle to integrate the recovered memories of the experiences into his perception of reality and how it forever changed his life. He will explain how the experiences altered his spiritual beliefs and led him on an explorative journey into religion, Gnosticism, reincarnation, interdimensional portals, quantum mechanics, the simulated holographic universe hypothesis, multidimensional realities, mysticism, spirituality, and eventually consciousness itself. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Steve Boucher is an AutoCAD draftsman who lives in St. Catharines, Ontario. He is also a musician, singer, and fine artist. Steve has had experiences with non-terrestrial beings since he was a baby. The bulk of his experiences were buried in his subconscious mind for many years until he began to have brief flashes of conscious memory after reading Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. To protect his identity at the time, he used a pseudonym of Jack T. However, he has decided that now is the time to reveal his identity to the public because he feels that the story needs to be told. Steve has remembered many more details and more experiences have surfaced since the initial investigation took place. Steve has written his real-life story in a book titled Beyond the Extraterrestrial Firewall, an experiencer's point of view, which you can obtain at Amazon.com or on his website, experiencer.ca. And directly from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, I would like to welcome Steve Boucher. Hello, Steve, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Well, Steve, I want to leverage every minute of this interview, and this is an incredible story. And as Grant Cameron says, this is one of the weirdest UFO stories we've ever heard, and I agree. So let's begin in chronological order. Okay, well, uh, my first experience uh, with these beings uh, was uh, what I call the pre-birth memories. And it was uh, some memories that I have of uh, before I was born. And uh, my connection with the beings began then. And uh, it took a while for this memory to come out. It, uh, that's the first one in the chronological order, but it, it took quite a while for me to remember that one. And how I remembered it was I was on my lunch one day um, I was working at a hardware store in between drafting jobs, and uh, I was reading a copy of the Nag Hammadi Library, and um, I came upon a uh, a story in there about uh, a high place, and uh, uh, I wish I could find the story again. It's a big, thick book, so it's kind of hard to track it down. But uh, they were talking about a high place where earth was visible from this high place. And um, when I started reading this, all of a sudden it was like a door burst open in my mind and the memories just started coming like, like crazy. And um, what I remembered was uh, I remembered being on the edge of uh, what seemed like a crater. And I believe it was on the moon because of the close proximity to Earth. And I could see the Earth uh, out there hanging in space like a big beach ball. And there was a being standing next to me, a, a gray being with uh, uh, the large head and uh, very big uh, black eyes. And uh, they kind of curved up around the side of his head a little bit. And I viewed myself as a small child but a human child or a human looking child. And uh, we were both looking out at, at the earth and um, this being, I knew him uh, fairly well and I had a great respect for him. Like uh, he was kind of like an officer of some sort, like, and I had the kind of respect that you would have uh, of a police officer or a, uh, perhaps a, a soldier of high rank. And, um, but I knew him well, like I'd known him for a long time. And I believe his name was Rigel. So that's what I call him. And uh, uh, he was telling me that I had to go down to earth. And I didn't want to go. I was uh, uh, frightened of the idea. And he said, why don't you want to go down to earth? He said, you have to go. The, uh, the council has decreed it. You, it's your time to go down to earth. And I said, well, I really don't want to go down there. And he said, why? And I said, because I've heard so many horrible things about that place. And uh, he said, well, you have to go. And he said, but there is a, a person that came back, that just came back from a life on earth. And maybe if you talk to him, he might be able to alleviate your fears of, of it. And he said, would you be interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll talk to him. 
And almost immediately, I found myself in this small room uh, that was unfurnished. It was uh, very dimly lit. And there was no, uh, no windows and only one chair in the middle of the floor. And this, there was a guy sitting in this chair. And he was kind of hunched over. I was looking at his left side uh, when I came in. And he looked very depressed. And I walked up to him and I said, uh, I understand that you just came back from a life on earth. And he said, yeah. And uh, I said, well, what was it like? And I said, was it good or was it bad? And he said, well, it's hard to explain. He said, it, it's both. He said, in some ways it's good. In other ways, it's bad. And I said, well, is it, <clears throat> excuse me, is it more bad than good or is it more good than bad? And he said, well, I'm really not the best person to ask. And I said, well, if you had to go back there again, would you go? And he said, well, that's the problem. He says, I, I have to go back. And I said, why? And he said, because I didn't complete my mission. And then all of a sudden I understood this dark feeling that was surrounding this guy, that he had ended his life before the uh, proper time. He, suicide. Yeah, he committed suicide. And that frightened me, and I backed away from him. And as soon as I backed away, I was back on the edge of this uh, crater with uh, Rigel standing next to me. And he said, did you talk to him? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did he alleviate your fears at all? And I said, no. He, you know, in fact, he, he made, made me more afraid to go. And uh, before I forget, I just want to mention that this high place, um, when I got this memory, when it came back to me, I thought of the high place in, mentioned in the Bible that Jesus uh, the devil took Jesus up to this high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and uh, said, if you do an act of worship to me, I'll give you all this. And um, I believe that high place was may have been the same place because it's a perfect vantage point to view all the kingdoms of the earth because, you know, the the moon stays tidal locked with earth, but earth is turning. So you could stand in that spot and uh, effectively see the entire earth turned if you, if you stayed there long enough. So you would in fact see all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's what crossed my mind when I uh, thought of this place. So anyway, uh, uh, I was arguing with uh, with this being i didn't want to go down to earth and he's i said what happens if i refuse to go and he said well if you refuse to go he says believe me there's a lot worse places they could send you than earth and when he said that i felt like my free will was being violated i felt like i had to go down there there was no way out of it and uh if I refused, um, 
they could send me someplace a lot worse. So I took it as a personal threat. And um, it, it was very upsetting to me. But anyway, as our conversation continued, I, uh, um, he basically made me feel like I, I had to go. There was no way out of it. And so I said to him, if I go down to Earth, will you come and check on me every now and then and make sure I'm okay? And he said, well, we don't usually do that, but yes, I will do that. And uh, uh, at that point, I realized that what I was doing was uh, I actually made like a soul contract with him where it was conditional that uh, if I would go to Earth, he would come and visit me and check on me to make sure I was okay. And uh, so... Uh, I agreed to go under duress. It wasn't a voluntary decision. Like a lot of people say, uh, when you come to Earth, you volunteered to come here. But that wasn't the case with me. I felt like I had a family somewhere out there, and I was taken from it and put on this mission to go to Earth, and I didn't want to go. But anyway, I ended up coming, uh, and... Before he said, before you go down there, he said, there's something that uh, I can tell you that will help you. And uh, he said, if when you go down there, he said, if you find people that carry the teachings of a man named Jesus and you learn those teachings, when you come back here, you'll go to a place far better and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so I said to him, okay, I'll find this Jesus. And he said, no, you won't find him because he's not there anymore. But if you find the people that carry his teachings, when you come back here, you'll go to a place far more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so uh, I told him I'd find these people. And he said, well, I hope you do. But he said, uh, uh, the chances are not very good. And I said, why? And he said, because you're probably not going to remember any of this. And I said, I will remember. And I insisted, I will remember. And he said, well, I hope you're right. And after that, I was, uh, I took the plunge, so to speak, and uh, uh, came to earth. And it's funny that throughout my life, uh, I was born into a Christian family, and I, I followed Christianity for a number of years, but I found that it just didn't seem to fit with me, because uh, I guess maybe because I was a scientist at heart, you know, I, I had an interest in science, and I, uh, I wasn't, um, I did have spiritual beliefs, but uh, um, I don't necessarily think that when he said, find the people that carry the teachings of Jesus, he didn't necessarily mean Christianity. Because I found uh, in the Nag Hammadi Library, and uh, I've read a lot of uh, books uh, that aren't part of the canon of Scripture, like the Book of Enoch and uh, uh, the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, Volumes 1 and 2, and I like to read uh, uh, other uh, ancient texts that deal with uh, 
with that uh, biblical period of time and before. And uh, so anyway, um, a friend of mine who was a Christian, she said, well, if he told you that you, if you find these people, when you go back to, uh, to wherever it was, uh, that you'll go to a place far better than anything you could ever imagine, she said, then why did you ever leave Christianity? And I said, well, because uh, personally, I don't think that they expected me to get this far. You know, maybe they, their intention was to just get me far enough to be uh, in a religion with some spiritual beliefs, but I actually uh, grew out of it. And my, once I left the church, my spiritual life blossomed tremendously. I just uh, I started to learn about um, unity consciousness and uh, uh, how we're all everything is connected and we're all one in the one that is all. And I started to learn all that stuff, and I found out that my my spiritual beliefs uh, were actually being held back by being in in a religion, and so. Once I broke free of that, my spiritual life has developed tremendously since then. When you took the plunge, so to say, and you were talking to Rigel, in what form yeah. were you? Spiritual? A bowl of light? Physical? How? Well, uh, I viewed myself as a small human child, and I felt like, like I was uh, in the life of a, a small human child. And what I, uh, it took me many years to figure this out, but I have a theory that I believe that he took me from some other place. I don't know where, like it was probably another planet somewhere that was inhabited with human beings. And I was a, a small child and uh, he took me from there. He abducted me and brought me in and sent me to earth. Oh, so you were not born through your mom, through, through your mother's, like a natural birth? I was. I was born uh, a natural birth through my mother. But my soul, I believe, came from somewhere else. I see. I see. So what happened then? Well, uh, the next experience that I recalled happening was when I was about two years old. And uh, I had this little metal cart. It, I wasn't able to ride a bicycle but or a tricycle, but I had this little metal cart that had a tray on the front of it, and it had a seat in it, and it had wheels on the bottom. And I could kind of pedal myself along the ground on in this little cart, sort of like Fred Flintstone style, you know. And uh, uh, so my mother, we lived in an apartment in the back of a house that was near a honey house. And people used to come to this honey house to buy honey and that. And uh, I was outside playing one time in, in my little cart. And my mother had told me to stay where she could see me from the back door. And I heard a voice calling me. And I looked around. I couldn't see anybody. And I said, where are you? And they said, over here behind the bushes. And the voice said, look over at the, at the bushes and the trees. 
And I looked over there in the neighbor's yard, and there were these trees and bushes. And he said, we're behind those bushes. Can you come over? And I said, well, I'll try. And I was pedaling this little cart across the grass, and it wasn't moving very fast on the grass because I was used to going on the uh, on the laneway in behind the apartment. But I managed to make way, my way around the side of the trees. And when I came around the other side, there was a, a large saucer-shaped craft sitting on the ground. And it was kind of blocked by the trees. You couldn't see it from, uh, you know, from the laneway. And there were two beings standing outside, uh, uh, outside the craft, and they were looking at me. And I heard the one being in my head. He said, uh, he called me Stevie. He said, we've been waiting for you. And he came over to me, and uh, I was wondering who he was, because he didn't look like anybody I knew. And he picked me up out of the this little cart and took me on board the ship. And the other being that was with him, there were two, uh, like, what seemed like gurneys on the ship. And one being laid down in, on the one, and he, uh, the other being laid me down on the other one. And I don't remember a lot about what the inside of the ship looked like, because I was very young, and I was only like two. But I do remember something like wires being put on me. And uh, I asked him what he was doing. And I found that I couldn't move. And I was getting agitated because I couldn't move. And he said, my friend here is going to get part of you, and you're going to get part of him. And at that point, I got really, uh, really agitated, and I started calling my mother. And uh, he said, it's okay. And I said, no, I want to keep all my parts. And he said, it's okay. It's not going to hurt. And I was pretty upset because I didn't know who these beings were and what they were doing to me, but I knew that something wasn't right. And uh, after this experience on the ship, then he took me and brought me back outside, and he put me in my little cart, and he said, okay, you can go home now. And so I started making my way across the around the bushes and across the grass again, and as soon as I came around the, the bushes, I saw my mother. She was standing out on the um, outside the, the back door with her hands on her hips calling me. And when she looked over and saw me, she started shaking her finger at me and going, where were you? I told you to stay where I could see you, you know, because there was a busy road in front of the house. And I think she was afraid that I would go out on the road and get hit. So uh, she came over and she said, if you ever do that again, I'll take the fly swatter to you. And the dreaded fly swatter was uh, <laughs> yeah. terrifying to me, you know, because uh, she used to give me a whack with this thing once in a while if I misbehaved and it stung, you know. And so anyway, uh, uh, she brought me back in the house and she sat me down in, in the living room and went back into the kitchen. And I was sitting in the living room, and I had these wooden building blocks that 
they had numbers and letters of the alphabet on them. And that's what us kids used to do before Sesame Street came along, you know, to learn the alphabet and learn how to count and stuff. And so I was playing with these wooden building blocks. And all of a sudden I heard the voice again calling me. And I had forgotten about the previous experience because at the end of every experience, they, they wipe your memory. So you don't remember. And I could hear this voice calling me again. And I said, where are you? And the voice said, climb up on the couch and look out the window. This is telepathically, right? Yes. And so I climbed up on the couch and I climbed up the back of the couch and looked out the window. And I said, where are you? And he said, look up. And so I looked up in the sky and all of a sudden I saw this bright light flash across the sky really fast. And uh, <clears throat> I was really surprised. And I said, was that you? And he said, yes. And I said, can you do it again? And he said, yes, I'll do it again. He said, I'll tell you when to look. And a few seconds went by and he said, okay, look now. And I looked up and the same thing, this bright white light shot across the sky. And uh, I said, if that's you, if you're up there, how come you can hear, you can hear me talking? And he said, because we can hear what you hear and we can see what you see. So in retrospect, I believe that they gave me some kind of an implant that allowed them to uh, see what I see and hear what I hear. And it also enhanced uh, this telepathic communication so that they could communicate with me from farther away. And so anyway, uh, I said, uh, are you going to come to visit me? And he said, not today, but we'll come and see you. And I said, what do you look like? And he said, uh, look between the chair and the door. And so I looked at the spot between the chair and the door, and I saw this holographic image of a gray being appearing there. And this was like in 1957, I guess, you know. And uh, so it surprised me. And I said, how come you can uh, hear what I hear and see what I see? My mother used to use this expression when I'd get confused. She'd say, oh, you've got your wires crossed. And so I asked the being, I said, is it like, do I have my wires crossed? And he said, yes, that's a very good way to explain it. And uh, I didn't really understand what was, what was happening. But uh, I said, uh, what, what's your name? And he said, well, you can call me the commander. And uh, for a two-year-old, that was a pretty big word for me. But uh, he said, anytime you want to speak to me, he said, just call out commander and you'll hear me. And so I had fun with this for, for a while. And at night when, I'd, uh, when my mother would put me to bed, I'd call out his name and I'd have these conversations with him while I was laying in bed. And uh, uh, one day when we finally moved, 
we moved to another place in Owen Sound, and uh, it was a house that my dad rented. And I was sitting in the bedroom, in my bedroom in this house, and suddenly this being walked in. And I looked at him, and I could see that he was different from me. And uh, uh, he said, how are you? And I said, I'm okay. And he said, well, you seem to be doing all right. And he walked over and he sat down in the corner of my room. And uh, uh, I walked over to him and, and I was studying his face and I could see the, these big black eyes. And, and uh, I asked him, I said, are you a gollywog? And he said, what's a gollywog? And so I had these children's books and uh, one of them was about this mythological being that was called a gollywog and he was like completely black with this, these big white eyes and I brought the book over and I showed it to uh, to the being and he looked at it and he said look at the gollywog on the book here and I looked at it and he said now look at me and I looked at him and the difference was the gollywog had this big black face with white eyes, big white eyes. And when I looked at the being, he had this big whitish face with big black eyes. And he said, now, do I look like that? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, then I guess I'm not a gollywog. <laughs> and he kept me amused with, with the conversation. And Nowadays, you, you can't find any books about uh, gollywogs because I guess it would be kind of... Uh, Politically incorrect, I guess some people would call yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, back then, it was commonplace. I had lots of different books, and that was one of them. And so, anyway, uh, he said, well, you seem to be doing okay, so I'm going to leave you now. And he walked out of the room, and he was gone. And... What I realized later after I recalled all the memories of these earlier experiences under hypnosis that, you know, how some, some, uh, most experiencers ask themselves, why me? Eventually you come to that question, why did they pick me? And uh, when I got the memories back, I realized that it was because I asked him to. And this being, was the same being that I stood on the edge of the crater with on the moon. Right, Joe. And that he was carrying out his part of the deal of this uh, conditional contract to come and check on me every now and then. And for the listener, Steve, you did not talk about this for decades. And I believe you started, you began, began the process of regression in 1982 with Bud Hopkins, am I right? Right. And what happened then was, uh, um, leads into the next experience that I had. When I read Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, uh, I started to remember flashes of memory of uh, an experience that involved my dad. And uh, as I thought about it, I was getting more and more fragments of memory and they were starting to fit together. And so... At the end of the book, uh, Bud had put a, 
a statement in the back of the book that said, if you feel that you might have had any encounters uh, like the ones mentioned in this book, and you'd like to have them investigated, you can write write to me at Richard Merrick Publications, and uh, I'll put you in touch with someone who can help you in your area. And uh, I was very tempted to write to him, but all I had were a few fragments of memory at the time. And I thought, well, since this experience involves my dad, I'm going to go and ask him. I'll sit down and ask him if he remembers any of this stuff. And if he does remember, then I'll write to Bud Hopkins. And if he doesn't, then it's probably just a dream. And so I went to my dad and I sat down with him and I told him that I have some memories that I want to share with you. And so I'll explain what happened in those those memories. I remembered being in a car, in my dad's car, and we were coming back from somewhere at night. We were driving down a dirt road, and there were trees on the left and the right of the road, like pine trees or evergreens. And uh, back in those days, the cars used to have a like a shelf behind the back seat. Um, and uh, it was wide enough that as a child, I was about four years old at the time then, I could climb up on there and lay down on this shelf and look up through the back window and see all the stars. And, and so I used to do this. I lay there on the shelf. The seat belts weren't a requirement back then. <laughs> and so uh, I would look up at the sky and uh, as we were driving. And at this particular occasion, I noticed that one of the stars was moving. And uh, I was staring at the star. And as I was staring at it, it was starting to get bigger and bigger. And I thought, it looks like it's coming towards us. So I climbed down off the shelf and I climbed over into the front seat. And I said to my dad, what's that, that light out there? And he said, what light? By this time, the, the light uh, had uh, arrived over top of about treetop height, and it was matching our speed. And I said, that light, and I pointed to, to it, and my dad looked out the window. And when he saw it, he went into like an instant panic. And I said, what is it? And he said, shut up, leave me alone. And uh, I was surprised that he spoke to me like that, but I could see he was visibly shaken. And uh, someone who I told this story to once suggested it, Maybe he was talking to the beings. Maybe he was speaking. He could hear them in his head or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, uh, he tried to outrun them. And you can't outrun a craft like that. And it was just too fast. And it shot ahead of us and started to come down in the road. And my dad had to stop. And... Uh, I could see that he was visibly shaken and that he was kind of afraid. And uh, we could see the the craft sitting in the road. It lit up the whole road and it lit up the trees. And uh, uh, then I saw these two beings come out and they stood there looking at us in front of the craft. And uh, then my dad 
seemed to regain his composure. And he said to me, I want you to stay in the car. He said, stay low so they don't see you. He said, I don't want you peeking over the dashboard. You stay low and you wait in the car. Under no circumstances must you get out of the car. He said, you wait here. He said, I'm going to go and see what they want, and I'll be back. And uh, he opened the, the driver's door, and he got out, and he closed the door, and he started walking towards these two beings. And uh, I was very curious, and I was peeking over the dashboard and watching this, and he walked up to the one being, and he was standing there talking to him. And the other being was over that being's left shoulder. And he was just standing there observing. And uh, I was waiting and, and waiting. And, you know, four-year-olds don't have a lot of patience. And, you know, and you can also get away with a lot. So I couldn't resist it. I had to see who these beings were and, and see if I knew them. And so I slipped out through the driver's door. And I started walking up behind my dad, and he was using his body to block the vision of the being so that it wouldn't see me. And at the same time, he put his hand behind his back, and he started waving to, for me to get back in the car, like to get back. And uh, uh, I walked up behind him anyway, and the being that was talking to him I could hear him in my mind. I could hear him saying, you seem to be concerned about the child. And my dad said, oh, yeah. He said, that's my son. And and he, once he knew that the being had seen me, he turned to me and he said, I told you to get back in the car. I told you to stay in the car, not to, not to get out of the car. You know, go back and get back in the car right now. And the being asked him, he said, would you like my crew member to take him back for you? And my dad said, no, that's okay. He said, we have to go. My wife is waiting at home, and we have to get going. So the the being, which I assumed was the leader, looked at the crew member, and as soon as he looked at him, the crew member came over and took me by the hand and started walking me back to the car. And my dad was just standing there in the road, dumbfounded with this look on his face that was like he was so uncomfortable with this idea of this being taking me back to the vehicle. But he saw that uh, I was safe and that I got in and the being got in beside me in the driver's seat. And uh, so this being basically started asking me questions and keeping me occupied. And he asked me, he had his hands on the steering wheel, and he said, what does this do? And I said, well, that makes the car go that way or this way, whichever way you, you want to go. And he said, I see. And he said, well, what do these do? And he pointed to the pedals on the floor. And I said, well, that one makes the car go, and that one makes it stop. And he said, oh, okay. And at this point, I looked up, and I noticed my dad and the other being were gone. So they must have gone on board the, the ship. And then he pointed to the radio and he said, what does this do? And I said, well, that's a radio. And I said, you hear music on it. You can hear people talking. 
And he said, oh, you can hear people talking on it. And he said, can you talk back to them? And I said, no, it, it doesn't work that way. And he said, oh, I see. And so he said, what do you do during the day? He said, are you going to school? And I said, no, that's next year. And when I remembered saying that, I realized that I must have been four because I start, started kindergarten at five. And that's how I knew I was four. So anyway, he basically kept me busy and babysat me while my dad was being abducted. And so uh, I was uh, talking to him for, I don't know for how long, but then I noticed my dad came back out with the other being. And he looked at me and he said, I, I have to go now. And I said, well, can't you stay a little longer? I was enjoying his company because he was taking an interest in me. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I felt like I liked him, <laughs> you know. And he said, no, he said, uh, he said, well, maybe for a minute. And then he looked and the other being nodded his head. And he said, now I do have to go. And he got out of the car, and he passed my dad in the road coming back to the car. And uh, my dad got in, sat down beside me, and uh, he was very quiet. He didn't say anything at first, and we just sat there and we watched the two beings get inside the ship. And the ship lifted off the road, and it started to move over top of the trees. And uh, so my dad started the car, and we started off towards home and then uh, that my dad remembered all of that part of the experience he remembered everything about that and when he remembered it I was very surprised we both were and we could feel the like uh, goosebumps you know <laughs> from uh, realizing that at that point that it wasn't just a dream it was an actual shared memory that we had and uh, what my dad didn't remember uh, that I found out later uh, during the QFORN investigation was that they came back a second time. And the second time they did the same thing. They came down in the road in front of us and my dad had to stop. And I remember him muttering something like, oh, what the hell do they want now? <laughs> I laughed when I read that part in the book. Yeah. And uh, so the one being... Uh, approached the car, and he sort of motioned for my dad to lower the window. Back in those days, we didn't have electric windows. He, he had to crank them down with a crank. And So my dad cranked the window down, and he said, what is it? And the being said, you forgot these. And he handed him his glasses. And so my dad thanked him and put the glasses on. He walked back to the ship, and they left again. And that was the end of that experience. But anyway... It was enough to convince me that it was real, that my dad confirmed this for me. And so I wrote a letter to Bud Hopkins. And a couple of weeks later, he called the house and he had my mother on the phone. And uh, she, uh, she called me and she said, Bud Hopkins is on the phone. And I almost fell off the bed. I was sitting in the bedroom. And when she told me that, I was so surprised because I didn't expect him personally to call. So I went and I answered the phone call. And uh, he said, I got your letter. He said, I have 
very strong reason to believe that you and your father had some kind of a UFO encounter with with, uh, beings. And he said, uh, uh, I was wondering if if you and your dad could come to Manhattan. He said, have you got any holiday time coming up or like uh, vacation time? And uh, my dad said, well, I can't go. You know, I talked it over with him. He said, I can't go because I have to work. But I had a week vacation coming up, and I was planning on going up to Own Sound again. We were living uh, living in St. Catharines at that time, and uh, I had my best friend lived in Own Sound, and I was going to go and visit him. But uh, when Bud Hopkins asked if we could come there, I I told him, well, my dad can't go, but I can come. And he said, okay, he said, because I have an art studio here. It's a fully furnished studio, like an apartment with a a washroom and and a little kitchenette area. And he said, you can stay in in my studio for, if you could come for a week. And he said, if if you can do that, I'll arrange uh, a flight for you. He said that uh, there's a flight that's called the Sky Bus that uh, businessmen use, and it's cheaper than a regular flight, and uh, it gets you there in about an hour or so. And so I agreed to go, and uh, I had to get permission from my parents, and they said, sure, you can go, but just uh, let us know how you're doing, and, you know. How old were you at the time? Uh, at that time, I guess I was maybe about, uh, hmm. well, it was 1982. So, uh, uh, I thought you were about 29 at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, because I was, uh, I think my first marriage had ended and I went back to live with my parents. Right. But, but my mother was always overprotective and, you know, even though I was, uh, like, a young man, uh, she was concerned about me going to a big city like that by myself. And but it uh, it worked out okay. I went, I took the sky bus, and I arrived in Manhattan. And uh, Bud Hopkins' best friend uh, Ted Blocher met me at the airport, and um, he had a big sign that said Bud Hopkins on it. So I knew right away that that was the person I was supposed to meet. So I met with him and uh, uh, we took a cab from the airport to uh, Bud's studio in Manhattan. And uh, uh, Ted gave me a key to the, uh, to the studio and he basically gave me some instructions. He said, uh, don't go out at night unless you have to. And he said, and if you do, he said, uh, if you need to go to the corner store for something, go straight there. Don't make eye contact with anyone and just get what you need to get and come back and lock the door at all times. Keep the door locked. And he said, uh, I have a, an agenda here for you to, uh, and it consisted of uh, three hypnosis sessions with Dr. Aphrodite Clamar that did the sessions in his book, Missing Time, with the uh, 
abductees or experiencers in the book. And he said, uh, I'm also, I've all, he's also arranged uh, that you meet with a behavioral therapist and she's going to give you some tests. Uh, and I guess like they were tests to test my IQ um, and to do an evaluation to make sure that I wasn't crazy and that I wasn't just doing all this to get attention or whatever. And, and he said, Bud hasn't told her what you're here for. He said, he's sent uh, a number of people to her without telling her that they were experiences or anything. And he said to her to look for a repeating pattern in these people. See if you can find something that they all had in common. And uh, so she didn't know much about me when I got there. Uh, she was a vegetarian and I was a meditarian. I didn't eat vegetables much. And uh, I went up to her uh, apartment and it was like I had to climb all these stairs. Like there were, uh, I don't know, I think she lived on the eighth floor or something. And, and I was out of breath by the time I got to her apartment. And she took me in and and uh, ran some tests on me. She did the, the Rorschach test with the ink blots. And there's one that they give uh, uh, university students. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's mentioned in my book. And she also gave me uh, a history test on American history. And uh, she uh, had me name a bunch of presidents, as many American presidents as I could. And I felt the test was a little bit unfair because I'm You're Canadian. Canadian. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yet I discovered that I knew more about American history than I did about Canadian history. And that I did very well on the test. And so uh, then she had me stay for, for lunch. And she gave me a smoothie made with sunflower seeds and other stuff. And to me, it tasted like wallpaper paste. And it was just <laughs> horrible, you know. Uh, now I have a smoothie like that almost every morning, but back then, uh, it was very unpalatable for me. And she gave me a salad and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, then I returned to, uh, uh, Bud's studio that night. But, uh, uh, I went to see Aphrodite Clamar, the doctor that did the hypnosis sessions in his book, Missing Time. She did two sessions on me, and we recorded them on cassette. And I later transcribed them by hand. And it's a good thing I did because the cassettes vanished. But I did the transcriptions from those two cassettes, and those transcripts are included in my book. Vanished as in they just got lost or somebody took them? They just disappeared. I don't know. Uh, I had a lot of cassettes, but I could never find them again when I got back to hmm. uh, St. Catharines. So anyway, uh, the third session that I had scheduled with her, she was sick that day. But Bud had a key to her office, and she gave him permission to go up to her office and to let him do the 
hypnosis session himself. So Bud did the third hypnosis session on me. But unfortunately, the microphone wasn't placed properly, and uh, I, uh, I wasn't heard. We recorded it, but it was just a big muffle. On the, you couldn't hear a word anybody was saying. So, so I never did get to transcribe the third tape. Uh, and then uh, afterwards, uh, at near the end of the week, when I was ready to go back, uh, Bud had a little party for me. He surprised me, and he invited the uh, some of the abductees that were uh, uh, clients of his, I guess you could call them. And uh, there was only like a handful of them, and he said, this is it from... New York. These are all the people that I um, worked with to investigate their cases. And so I met these people and uh, three of them were young like me. There were uh, two women and, and a, a guy. And there was an older lady that uh, walked with a cane. And apparently uh, uh, Ted Blocher had written a book about the Hopkinsville incident uh, with this woman. Uh, uh, they did an investigation of this incident at Kelly in Hopkinsville, where uh, some of the people that are familiar with that case would recognize that uh, they called these beings goblins. And uh, they were on the roof of the house that uh, this, where the case uh, occurred. So anyway, uh, her name was Isabel Davies, I think it was, and uh, uh, Bud ordered some pizza for us and some pop and stuff, and and we talked about our experiences with each other, and it was uh, it was very pleasant, and uh, I got some pictures of uh, of these people, which are also included in the book, and of Bud and his friend Ted Blocher and some of Bud's artwork on the wall. Uh, behind them. Uh, apparently he was a, uh, an internationally acclaimed artist. He, and uh, he used to pay Dr. Clamar for her, her hypnosis sessions on the people he brought to her. He'd pay her with art. <laughs> so when I got to her office, like she had his artwork on the walls everywhere, you know. Uh, so he told me, he said, when you go back to St. Catherine's, he said, you've definitely got uh, some stuff that has gone on with UFOs. And uh, I remembered quite a bit in the three sessions that we did. He said, if you want to go further with it, he said, find a group called MUFON. So when I came back to St. Catherine's, it just happened that uh, a couple of weeks later, there was a MUFON symposium in Toronto. And so uh, uh, I went to the symposium and I was looking for these guys from MUFON. And I found one guy that I mistook for a guy from MUFON, but he was actually a member of QFON, the Canadian UFO Research Network. And so I started spilling my story to him and uh, he got very interested and started writing things down. And he put me in touch with QFORN. 
And so uh, these guys from QForn, uh, they came to St. Catharines. They interviewed me and my dad. Uh, we went to uh, uh, a place where the incident that I call the van incident happened, where my band was abducted one night. And uh, so they did a pretty thorough investigation. Uh, they did a, a super job. And I have the uh, the QForn bulletin where they recorded the whole case. And I used a lot of that information in my book as well. So um, it's, uh, I don't have proof, you know, like uh, very few abductees have proof. But with the, uh, uh, the notes from the case and stuff like that, it's, uh, there's a lot of evidence, but nothing really that can prove it. But don't you have witness yeah. testimony from your bandmates? Well, uh, they didn't want to talk about it. In fact, uh, uh, I don't think we'll have enough time to go through the van incident but, uh, where my band was abducted. But Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'd like you to retell that story if you can. Okay. Um, well, we we were the house band at a a hotel in Niagara on the Lake called the American Hotel. And after a gig one night at the American Hotel, we were packing up our stuff, <clears throat> and the drummer said, uh, "I got an invitation from a friend of ours. Uh, uh, he's having a party in Vineland, and he said uh, maybe your band could come and play a set." And he said, I don't know, uh, I'll ask them, but uh, he said, if you guys aren't too tired, would you want to go? And I said, sure. And we all agreed. So he, he said, we won't stay long. We'll just play one set and then, then leave. So we went to this party and uh, uh, we set up the equipment in the house. Uh, there was a pole lamp in the corner, that, a telescopic pole lamp that I had to take down so the drummer could put his drums there and uh, there was a Christmas tree in there so uh, it was in the winter time it was pretty cold out and we played one set and there was a fellow there that came up to us he was he looked like just a regular uh, hippie type guy like like we did you know he had the long hair and the blue jeans and blue jean jacket and that. And he said, would you guys happen to be going to St. Catharines? And we said, yes. And he said, uh, would you mind giving me a ride? And um, so we said, okay. And, uh, but he seemed kind of drunk. Like he said that he was supposed to meet a friend at the party. And the friend told him, if you can get there, I'll get you home. But his friend didn't show up. And so he had no ride, and the, and the owner of the house just kept giving him booze, and so he was he was kind of drunk when we uh, met up with him, but we agreed to let him come with us. And so he climbed in the back with uh, with us with all the equipment, and uh, so there was the guitarist in the front driving, and next to him in the passenger seat was the drummer, and then in the back. There was myself, uh, the bass player, the hitchhiker, and the guitarist's girlfriend. 
who I call, I'll call her Anne Marie. And uh, so the four of us were in the back with all the equipment and uh, the drummer and the guitarist were in the front seat. And so we decided that after we left the party in Vineland, we were looking for the entrance to the Queen, Queen Elizabeth Highway to head back to St. Catharines. And it happened to be closed. The gate was across, and so we couldn't get on at that uh, intersection. So we decided we'd take the service road, the north service road, and drive down to the next junction and get on it there. So that's what we started to do. And we were on the north service road, which uh, uh, rides uh, parallel to the... uh, uh, shoreline of Lake Ontario, and we were headed uh, down the service road, and we were all talking in the back, and uh, and then uh, the, the van stopped, and I said, what are you stopping for? And he said, well, you guys better take a look at this, because you're not going to believe me. He said, there were some lights up ahead. He said, I thought it was an accident, but it's not an accident. And we looked, and there was the this saucer-shaped craft sitting in the parking lot of a restaurant there. The restaurant has uh, changed hands many times. Uh, uh, At that time, uh, ironically, it was called Admiral Bird's Restaurant, but it was later called the Plain and Fancy, and uh, uh, I think the last name was the, the Beach House or something like that. Who would call a restaurant Admiral Bird's Restaurant unless they know the story of Admiral Bird? Yeah, really. I mean, I I was surprised that they named it that, you know. It, it's a very unusual name for it. But uh, I've eaten in that restaurant a couple of times, and it's it's been there, uh, it must be at least like 100 years old now. It's been there quite a while. And they had like a, there was a big cauldron in there uh, from back in in the 1800s, I guess. And, and they had it with, there was bricks all around it and stuff like that. It was quite an interesting place and it overlooked the shore of Lake Ontario. But at this particular time, uh, this ship was sitting in, in the middle of the parking lot and we would have had to pass it to continue on our way. And none of us really wanted to do that. When we saw this thing, we thought, uh, the, the driver asked, what do you think it is? And I came up with the suggestion, well, maybe it's a, a movie prop for a movie. And uh, I think it was the drummer that said, why would they be filming a movie at in the middle of the night, like this was around three in the morning when we saw this thing. So we decided that rather than approach it, we'd turn around and go back and take the back roads back to St. Catharines instead. So we were going to turn around and uh, uh, we started moving toward the thing. And then I noticed that, uh, we weren't stopping and we weren't turning. And I said, why aren't we turning? Why aren't you turning? And uh, the 
guitarist had his hands cranked on the wheel and it was not turning. And uh, I said, well, put on the brake. And he said, I'm trying to. And he was pumping the brake and nothing was happening. And at that point, I noticed that I couldn't feel the vibrations in the road that you normally feel when you're driving. It was just like a smooth um, floating sensation. Yeah. And we were headed straight towards this thing. And we were going toward it so fast that I started to brace myself for impact because I wasn't sure if we were going to hit it. I didn't know what was happening. And we stopped about, uh, I'd say, maybe 30 feet away from it, about 30 or 40 feet away from it, and came to rest on the road. And the van wouldn't start. And everybody was yelling. We were all panicking in the back. And uh, I was looking for a weapon in case I needed one. That, and I thought, well, the mic stand, I grabbed onto that. And uh, then the, the drummer that was sitting in the passenger seat suddenly became the voice of reason. And he said, everybody just shut up. And so the, the whole van went, went quiet. And he said, if we don't move and we don't make any noise and they don't hear us, then maybe they'll leave us alone. And nobody had a better plan, so that's what we decided to do. So we stayed very quiet inside the van. And uh, I wanted to look over the seat. And he said, no, stay down, stay low. And uh, him and, and the guitarist just... They had front row seats for this thing. They were, it was right in front of them. And then I heard the, uh, the drummer say, uh, oh, no. And I said, what's happening? And he said, they're getting out. And I said, I want to see. And he said, no, stay down. And I said, well, what do they look like? And he said, they're just little guys. And I said, little guys? And he said, yeah. And, uh, but we stayed completely still. And... Uh, and I could hear them trying the doors, trying to open the doors, and we had all the doors locked. And at one point, uh, I saw the profile of a, one of the beings' head went by the, the window. There was only one window in the back on the one side. And I saw this head go by, and I said, Oh, did you see that? And everybody went, Shh, you know, quiet. And I said, yeah, but did you see that? And Anne-Marie said, I saw it. And then we could hear them trying the doors in the back. And the tension was so thick in the van, it was just, we were all terrified. And then this hitchhiker that none of us knew him, he suddenly just looked around quickly, and then he reached over and he opened the back door of the van, and it swung open. And I couldn't believe he'd done that. And uh, there were, I saw three beings there in a lineup. And the one in the front immediately came up into the van. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. 
Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.